careful now. Boing. So cool to be playing vinyl. Vinyl. Took the record off the turntable. You ready for this? Welcome to Behind the Vinyl. Here's your host, Stu Jeffries. This is the podcast that takes you behind the song to find out how it came to be and the stories behind the songs told by the artists themselves as they play their song on vinyl. Hence the title of the podcast, Behind the Vinyl. We're creative like that. In this episode, Tom Cochran talks about Lunatic Fringe and how the song, or rather the whole recorded album, was destroyed and had to be re-recorded. It took us, I think, about nine months to record the record. And then the tape fell apart. We had to re-record it in three weeks. Tom, in a few minutes, right now we hear how Andy Kim relied on a cassette player sound to tell him if one of his songs was going to be a hit or not. Don't you love turntables? They are everything. So you're obviously waiting for me to say something about this great song. Or are you? Um, It's the strangest thing that um, I've always said to myself and said to other people eventually that you can't take a bow for inspiration. Well, we wrote the song in about 10 minutes. And uh, the interesting thing for me is that um, I think I... I was so excited about that song that I kind of just loved playing it all day long. And um, But the art of the record is a different story. You have to go into the studio and get musicians to uh, make this song come alive in the studio. And um, I think it was uh, rough going at the beginning, but I uh, recorded everything on, on this little Sony cassette player that I had that made everything that I wrote uh, sound like a hit, at least to me. Sounded like it was coming out of a transistor radio. And so, um, after about an hour of it not working, uh, my producer Jeff Barry saw the look in my eyes and we took a break. And uh, we were in the RCA uh, recording studios at the time in New York. And uh, so he said, So? I said, Well, you know, it just sounds so great on my cassette player. and when we were in the office writing and you were doing what you do, which is uh, just a great percussionist kind of banging on the desk and just making sounds to my guitar playing and it sounded like a record then. And so, uh, so I said, well, I'll just play it for you. And it was kind of like the groove that I was playing that, that, that wasn't happening because someone else was actually playing the guitar, I mean the acoustic guitar version. And, and for me, I've always felt that um, although songwriters don't usually uh, get into the studio, but I was an artist. Uh, Baby, I Love You was about to come out that, that year. And um, so finally, through uh, everybody listening to my guitar playing, um, we finally got this pocket, as they say, which meant that everything sounded great. And... Um, so we were all excited about the record. We had, you know, people come in while we were doing backgrounds. And, uh, and um, uh, Ray Stevens, uh, you know, everything is beautiful. And Ahab the Arab, he showed up. Um, and uh, he's part of the hand claps that you hear. Um, and then 
they put the record out. Now, Baby, I Love You was starting to climb the charts. Sugar Sugar comes out, and nobody wants to play it. And um, so Don Kirshner, man with the golden ear at the time, uh, hired an independent promotion man. And he decided that um, um, the independent promotion man should walk in with a blank label so that nobody knew it was the Archies. And he, um, he wrote some... Um, he wrote some funky, let's say funky words on the, on, the, on the label and walked into a radio station in San Francisco. And um, obviously he goes there every Tuesday as we continue to do today. I think it's still Tuesdays. And he, um, he walked in and the music director, which was also the program director, said, uh, okay, so what do you got? He said, I got this hit. And um, the guy said, so... Uh, so who's it by? And he said, I can't tell you. He says, well, you got to tell me. There's got to be a history. You got to tell me. No, no, no. I want you to hear this. And if you don't think it's a hit, you don't have to play it. But if you think it's a hit, then will you play it? He says, we only play the hits here. That's what you hear from people that, that listen to your music and decide not to play it. Uh, they say, well, you know, it doesn't sound like the other records. It's not really for our station. So he plays him the record, and the guy said, okay, I'll add it. It's, it sounds like a hit to me. Who is it? He says, the Archies. He says, I can't play it. What do you mean? He said, well, it's a non-group. It's the Archies. Um, what do you do? Well, he said, you promised that you would play it. He said, okay, I'll give you a couple of spins. But, uh, you know, you're a Woodstock the Vietnam War, all the excuses in the world said he wouldn't play it. And um, he turns around and he said, okay, I'll play it this afternoon. He plays it that afternoon and, and at that time, in 1969, I think everything in life is about context. At that time, um, the audience was Really, that was the interactive time. No one had a cell phone. You didn't have social media. You interacted with radio stations. You know, you called them. You requested songs. Uh, you wanted to be part of whatever radio station was doing. And um, that, that one play, the lights lit up at the switchboard, and he added it, and then it was like wildfire went all over the world. I can travel, and no matter what language uh, the population um, speaks every day. If I start singing sugar, everyone's gonna end up saying, ah, honey, honey. So, um, and they're probably singing better than I just did, but. Um, so to me, it's, it's really, um, it's an out-of-body experience. It's something that um, comes from somebody and that's all the singers and, and musicians that play and make records all the time. And then it doesn't belong to you, it belongs to, uh, to the audience that actually, you know, love the record and purchase the record. And, uh, and here I am today, a thousand years later, still enjoying the song when I hear it. Um, I love the Wilson Pickett version and Ike and Tina Turner and Bob Marley versions. But the Archie version is the best. And um, 
So maybe, um, maybe uh, my obit will have the word sugar, sugar in it. It's okay. I've lived a very lucky and blessed life. If you look at, all you have to do is look at this song. There's Sugar Sugar from Andy Kim on Behind the Vinyl. Thanks for listening. I'm Stu Jeffries. Lee Aaron, also known as the Metal Queen, noticed something about music videos back in the 80s and wanted to change a few things about how women were portrayed. Lee explains how she did that with her song, What You Do to My Body. We had so much fun making this record. That's Lenny DeRose, our engineer, actually doing the, the count at the beginning. He did that as a joke when we started recording the song, and we were like, that's perfect, we have to keep it. So it ended up making the cut. I, uh, I wrote this song with John Albany, my uh, guitar player. He and I wrote all the material for the Lee Aaron albums. He was my songwriting partner in crime for many, many years. and. Um, When we wrote this song, it was this sort of exploding era of MTV and much music and that, that whole thing. And what really started to bug me, I have to say, was the way all these sort of the, the, the male bands, the male rock bands, would bring women into their videos and just sexually objectify them. And um, they were there as eye candy as to prop the men up. And I thought, you know, what an interesting idea to be able to write a song that um, can celebrate and even make women feel empowered about their sexuality. And that was sort of the inspiration behind what you do to my body. And, um, you know, we had taken this, we had a bunch of demos for this album. We'd taken it around, we'd interviewed a few Toronto producers that John and I were interested in working with. and. Um, it seemed like they didn't really get it. They didn't really get um, that we wanted to make this record that was powerful but had a very feminine element to it. They seemed to have a sort of a cookie cutter vision of what a woman in rock was supposed to look like and supposed to sound like and we're like and it just wasn't really working for us. Even at one point we had um, a very, very big name producer, I don't want to say who it was, come up from LA and had a meeting with the record company and we're sitting in this boardroom and you know he Basically, they discussed time frame, money, how many points he was going to get on the record, and but he says, you know, but I, you know, I'm not really hearing a lot of this material, and but I happen to have some songs that I own the publishing on that would be great for Lee, and we get out of this meeting and we're kind of John and I are like, you know, that's not really working for us, you know, like um, he doesn't like our songs, you know, did it ever occur to anyone maybe he's not the right guy? So in the end. Um, in the interest of low risk, we were given some money to go make this record that wasn't our usual budget. And we ended up using our A&R guy at Attic Records at the time, which was a guy named Brian Allen, wonderful guy. And he was sort of basking in the success of, um, he'd written What About Love for Heart. And he got it. And we were like, hallelujah. So we went into the studio with not a very big budget. We, um, we didn't even have enough money to bring in a whole band to keep him in the studio for a month and pay them. So we brought up this um, uh, programmer guy from LA, named Scott Humphreys. He was like the programming guru. And this was actually pre-digital technology, so this was really cutting edge um, stuff we were doing. We had programmed all the drums, we programmed all the bass, John put down all the guitar tracks, I recorded all the vocal tracks, and when the masters were finally done, people were like, wow. 
you we and you know we and so it to me it was really a testament um, to having that singularity of vision and sticking to our guns and making the record we wanted to make because in the end it ended up becoming my biggest charting single in Canada um, it endeared us to legions of female fans and that a lot of that was the video um, an interesting point that I want to make too actually when I when I'm talking about the sexuality thing, it was very important to me to not have my picture on the cover of the single that went to radio. I wanted to sell music, not me. And this, this is the album cover actually, but um, this is what ended up on the single sleeve that went to radio. And I think because of that, because we weren't trying to sell my face and we were going on the strength of the music, radio jumped all over it. And um, we ended up with a very successful Album. It was almost triple platinum in Canada, and um, we ended up with a CMPA Songwriters Award at the end, and multiple Juno nominations, and I don't know, what can I say? It was kind of like, in the end, it ended up feeling like the little record that could, <laughs> which is kind of a cool thing. That's Lee Aaron with What You Do To My Body on Behind the Vinyl. Tom Cochran is a true Canadian treasure and very passionate about his music, obviously. So much that losing something he's worked so hard on pretty much destroyed him. Tom explains what happened as he plays his song, Lunatic Fringe. Yeah, Lunatic Fringe, man, that was, um, that was a big, big song for Red Rider for us. And, boy, I could tell it. there's just a bunch of different stories, you know. It's funny, we, the song was... Uh, Eclipse start me up on radio and set a record at to rock radio 16 straight weeks We every week we'd get the report you know, Friday morning quarterback number one number one and we just thought How long is this gonna last? It was crazy and um, It just it just kept gathering momentum and kept going And to this day it's it still gets a ton of airplay especially in the States um, at classic rock radio and my wife uh, Kathy a few years ago bought me a book hundred or thousand one songs you have to have heard and this is this is in there uh, in the States she, she got the book in New York and it was um, this song was magical it may not have you know sometimes you wonder whether a song is you, whether you can't kill it with a stick I don't know about this song because we recorded it once the tape fell apart. Never been that depressed in my life. And I remember I was traveling out west and I was listening to it in the car um, with Kathy. And we were moving out to the west coast and, and I realized, oh man, this is falling apart, you know? This tape is falling apart. And I was hoping it was a cassette, but it turned out it was on the masters. So we had to totally re-record the song. And uh, Peter Wolf ended up doing the keyboard stuff. So the intro on the song was Peter Wolf. We had done sort of a rough version of it, but he came in, he's this crazy Austrian keyboard player. And later we toured with uh, Jefferson Airplane and Grace Slick. And so it was Jefferson Starship at the time. She said, who did that? That incredible spooky intro to that song, man. We, I just love that song. And I said, well, this is Peter Wolf. Well, lo and behold, a year later he produced Gray Slick and he co-wrote Built the City built and a bunch of others um, but at any rate he came and did the intro to this and we um, but you know we had to re-record the whole record in three weeks it took us I think about nine months to record the record 
and then the tape fell apart. We had to re-record it in three weeks. So it was almost like the first recording was rehearsal. But I remember when I demoed the song, and I demoed it with Fraser Hill, and everybody at that time, management, everybody was saying, what are these lyrics? These are, these are way too heavy for rock and roll. Why don't you just get down to writing a pop song? Just write some pop lyrics. Let's get on with it. And I thought, no, this is important to say. The song speaks out against racism, it speaks out against a number of things, and it topically is, is current today, I suppose, as it was back then in some ways. And about being vigilant, about our freedom. And uh, Fraser Hill came over the talk bag, and he had a weird sense of humor. And he said, John Lennon's been shot. And I said, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I thought, here's a guy that always wore his heart on his sleeve, and I thought, for better or for worse, these lyrics are going to stand, you know, I'm going to... And I didn't think the song would see the light of day, because it was just so different, so unique. And it did, and so, obviously, you know, in, in 16 weeks at number one on, on the US AOR chart, album rock radio chart, it was amazing. And to this day, I tell young artists, I said, when people tell you that you're doing something wrong, or you shouldn't be doing this, or you shouldn't be going in this direction. I say, maybe that's the very direction you should be going in with your music. So I'm very proud of this song. It's just, uh, it's probably one of the more unique pieces of music I've ever written. And Kenny just plays his heart out. Just the steel guitar on this is magical and it's unique. And it's like nobody's ever heard except for, uh, I guess David Gilmore has experimented with a slide guitar and done brilliant things with it in the past. And so they were a big inf influence, inspiration with us as, as a band. And it just, the song just had a life of its own, like sometimes great songs do, and Life's a Highway is another one, and uh, Boy Inside the Man to a lesser degree, I guess. It's just, in, in big league, they stand the test of time. And that's what I always wanted to do. I wanted to write songs that meant something, that still would entertain people, but had impact and, and meant something, but songs that would stand the test of time. And uh, you don't always achieve it. Um, you just, you just kind of put one foot ahead of the other and do your best. And I've been very, very lucky and blessed to be able to come up with some songs that have stood the test of time. And Lunatic Fringe is one of them. Lunatic Fringe, Tom Cochran on Behind the Vinyl. I'm Stu Jeffries, extending a huge thank you for listening and hopefully a little learning. we got a pile of these episodes you can catch up on and more to come, so make sure you subscribe to our channel. Thanks again, and see you soon. This has been Behind the Vinyl, the podcast, hosted by Stu Jeffries. Audio production courtesy of Doug Morehouse, Derek Walsman, and Troy McCallum. Thanks for listening. <laughs>